0: Welcome to The Dinner Party, this
1: is your icebreaker.
0: So these two Indians are standing on a bluff when the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria land and Christopher Columbus walks onto the beach. One Indian turns to the other and says, well there goes the neighborhood. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan
2: Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
1: You just got a joke from Native American author Sherman Alexie. He's got a new collection of stories out called Blasphemy that we'll hear more about later. And speaking of blasphemy, author Salman Rushdie is here to talk about living life under a fatwa.
2: Also coming up, we hear from Ryan Johnson, director of the new film Looper,
1: Yes. photographer and blogger
2: Todd Selby, and Project Runway's Tim Gunn stops by to answer your etiquette questions
1: Be warned, no sweatpants allowed. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk.
2: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. National
3: Football League officials are going back to work.
4: The heaviest rain in decades has pounded Nigeria. Some 2,000 workers at a Foxconn factory in central China rioted Sunday night.
2: Now for a story you might not have heard. We are joined by Sadie Stein. She is the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: I'll definitely be talking about the fact that the best word ever has been declared.
2: The best word ever. Yes. Who declared it? And then, of course, tell us what the well, word
5: was. Well, it is. was crowdsourced. And the blogger uh, Ted McCag has been running a bracket for the past couple of months. And it's been a heated race, as you might imagine. <laughs> it's sort of like
1: <laughs> the basketball finals well,
2: it's for more. Nerds.
5: It's more important.
2: <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> sure. Yes. So what's the final four, then?
5: Final four was Gherkin. <laughs> kerfuffle, uh-huh. dipthong, mm. and horn swoggle. <laughs> horn?
1: Those are all great words. Those are good. I'm sad that kumquat didn't make the cut, but all right.
5: Kumquat was eliminated early. Oh, then it came down to gherkin versus dipthong.
1: <laughs> okay. I know who I'm pulling for. We're a food-centric show.
5: And the winner. Yes. Dipthong. See, okay, well, you have to keep in mind.
1: That's kind of lame. Well,
5: what? it's a, great word. a It's a grammatical term. Yeah, so
1: it's the, the best word ass- is a word that describes a word? That
2: well, seems lame. Well, you have to
5: lame. assume it was a fairly self-selecting population voting.
1: <laughs> that's true. I would be
2: more disappointed, but open bar is two words, <laughs> and that would have been my favorite. Your so, favorite word. So, yeah. That's your favorite. My, yeah. my
5: favorite word is um, sullen. sullen. Sullen? Yeah. Oh. It's not... The best word, I just love it.
2: Yeah, because it sounds like it is, right? It's sullen.
5: Exactly. Can I
2: ask you guys something? Yeah. Can you tell me what a diphthong is?
5: I know what it is.
2: Tell me. And I can tell you editor of the I can tell
5: you that the Greek derivation is literally two sounds or two tones. Oh. And also that it's also known as a gliding vowel. And yes, I have this up in front of me. (laughs) Because I wouldn't have known how to describe this. um, You
1: had to look up a resource to give that. So our word of the day is cheater. I liked what I was thinking a diphthong was better than what (laughs) UDI said it was. Well no one
5: knows, so use it however you want. Let's
1: not go there. Sadie Stein. Thank you so much for the small talk. A
5: pleasure, always.
1: And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1959, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev showed up in Coon Rapids, Iowa.
2: And unless your dinner party's in Coon Rapids, we doubt your guests will know why. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
6: Everyone likes corn. Even godless communists. Case in point, Nikita Khrushchev. He thought corn was the key to ending the Soviet Union's chronic food shortages. In fact, in 1955, he gave a big speech announcing plans to plant miles of corn. Kinda like Iowa's. That's just what an Iowa corn farmer named Roswell Garst wanted to hear. See, America was in the middle of a corn glut, driving down prices. Garst figured the U.S. could unload its surplus on the Soviets. Plus, bonus, it'd promote world peace. Garst asked the State Department to let him sell corn to the commies. Now, this was right in the middle of the Red Scare but the government reluctantly okayed Garst's plan, figuring the Ruskies would never deal with a cantankerous capitalist. Wrong! On his first trip to Moscow, Garst sold 5,000 tons of corn seed and became best pals with an ex-farmer, Khrushchev himself. Four years later, Khrushchev became the first Soviet leader to ever visit the U.S. The only two guys he specifically asked to see... Eisenhower at the White House and Garst on his farm. The media freaked out. There was a horde of journalists and they started crowding in so that you couldn't see the corn for the journalists. Roswell Garst uh, got angry, uh, started picking up the husks and hurling them. At one point, he slipped and fell into a ditch. Everybody roared with laughter, Khrushchev first and foremost. Life magazine ran a cover photo of Khrushchev waving an ear of Garst's corn. For many, it symbolized a thaw in the Cold War. But the good vibes only lasted a few years. Khrushchev never did solve his country's food shortage. And by 1961, the Berlin Wall was under construction. As Roswell Garst once said, hungry people are dangerous people.
1: So that was the history. Now let's hear the drink to serve along with it. I'm talking to Ashley Guillaume. She is at the High Life Lounge in Des Moines, Iowa. And Ashley, you've heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make?
4: After I heard the history, I did a bit more research and found that Kercheff was quoted as saying the martini is America's lethal weapon. Is that true? That is true. Is, well, is the martini a lethal weapon?
1: Well, I knew that, but did he actually say it? He did. That's amazing.
4: So I decided to go with a dry martini. I named it Roswell's Weapon, Roswell being Roswell Garst. Of course. And made with corn vodka.
1: Corn vodka? is it how Does it taste different?
4: It, it's a creamier taste, not as dry.
1: Is there anything in this world that does not have corn in it at this point? Not a
4: lot of things. Pretty
1: prevalent. <laughs> lucky for your state. It uh, is.
4: Very lucky. <laughs>
1: all right. So it's a martini. Do you use uh, vermouth? A uh,
4: swirl of dry vermouth and chilled corn vodka with a garnish of Nyman Ranch peppered bacon, twisted and stuffed with Maytag blue cheese.
1: And Nyman Ranch bacon comes from Iowa?
4: Yes. But, not,
1: but you didn't go with a garnish of corn just to make it as corny as possible? No.
4: No corn. I had the corn in the vodka.
1: Well, that's admirable restraint. <laughs> and is that it?
4: That would be all.
1: Far simpler than, than international diplomacy, apparently. Absolutely. And listeners, we should note that an interview was taped quite a while ago. Ashley is no longer with the High Life Lounge, though, if you ask, I'm sure they'll make you that cocktail. In any case, it shouldn't diminish the delightful image of Khrushchev wandering around an Iowa cornfield. Yeah. I love that. As
2: opposed to Putin, who would have showed up in Iowa topless riding a tiger. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Russian leaders have more fun
2: than our leaders. Apparently. Uh, Folks, you can find all our drink recipes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
1: And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is Emmy-winning writer and producer Michael Price. His latest project debuted this week on the Cartoon Network. It's a half-hour special that takes the world of Star Wars and recasts it in the form of animated Legos. Here he is to list some other unusual adaptations.
7: My name is Michael Price. I'm a writer and a co-executive producer on The Simpsons. I am also a writer of the new Lego Star Wars special, The Empire Strikes Out. (laughs) It's one of many uh, adaptations and reimaginings of the Star Wars universe, which got me thinking uh, from my list of some of my favorite pieces of culture that were reimagined from other things. And so here we go. My first choice is the 1979 Walter Hill film, The Warriors. This film took the ancient Greek epic Anabasis, a story about a group of soldiers trying to return from Persia in 400 BC and reset it to a more primitive and brutal time and place, 1970s New York City. It follows a gang, the Warriors, as they try to make their way back to their home turf of Coney Island. From the Bronx where they've traveled for a gang summit and been unjustly accused of the murder of the gang peacemaker Cyrus who was adapted from King Cyrus of Persia in the original. It's very fun. It's really crazy. It's super violent. It has really almost nothing to do with ancient Greek. But the part of the movie that I like the best is where the warriors are just about made at home and their arch enemy Luther, is lying in wait for them in a car. And he's clicking these beer bottles together while saying the immortal line.
5: Warriors come out to play.
7: Warriors come out to play. Years later when I became a television comedy writer, Every show I was on, I tried to pitch some version of that line for one of the characters to say. And after about three or four years being on The Simpsons, I finally was able to have Homer Simpson say a version of that line while the family is searching for a missing jigsaw puzzle piece.
8: Puzzle piece, come out and play, yay!
7: My number two is another film adaptation of A Great Legend. It is the 1964 Rat Pack movie, Robin and the Seven Hoods, starring Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra.
3: Now this could only happen to a guy like me.
7: And of course, it is an adaptation of the Robin Hood legend set in 1920s Al Capone gangster time Chicago. Not only that, it is a giant musical. So it's got I some amazing songs uh, by Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, the most famous of which is, is the song My Kind of Town.
1: My kind of town, Chicago is
7: Some of the songs are great, some are not so great, but it's really, really fun. And it probably remains the one movie musical that has yet to be turned into a Broadway musical, although they've tried. They did a version of it uh, a couple years back in San Diego that uh, I believe was supposed to be a pre-Broadway tryout and didn't work out. Of course, it bears the hallmark of great film adaptations, of great literature, taking the names and just changing them a little. (laughs) So Frank Sinatra is Robbo, (laughs) the hood. Dean Martin is Little John. Peter Falk is their gangster rival, Guy Gisborne.
9: I'm the only candidate, therefore I'm the new leader. So thank you, I'm grateful for the whole thing. Let's go on to the next business. What about uh, Robbo? Robbo is in, or he's under.
7: My number three is a reverse of the first two in that it is a literary adaptation of a film property, the Roadrunner cartoons. This is a piece that was written by Ian Frazier for the New Yorker magazine in 1990 called Coyote v. Acme. This piece imagines a lawsuit brought by the Coyote against the Acme Company for the defective products he orders from them that he then uses to try to catch the roadrunner. Here's a part of the lawsuit brief where the Coyote's lawyer talks about the Coyote's difficulties with a rocket sled. Upon receipt of the rocket sled, Mr. Coyote removed it from its wooden shipping crate and, sighting his prey in the distance, activated the ignition. As Mr. Coyote gripped the handlebars, the rocket sled accelerated with such sudden and precipitate force as to stretch Mr. Coyote's forelimbs to a length of 50 feet. Beep, beep. I think this piece is so incredibly funny because it takes something, first of all, that was funny on the screen, imagines that it's real, and then reduces it to the dry legalese of a lawsuit. I wish everyone's lawsuits were this funny, but uh, they aren't.
2: The guest list from Michael Price. He wrote and produced Lego Star Wars The Empire Strikes Out. It debuted this week on the Cartoon Network.
1: Yes, and Brendan, I've I've always loved that movie, The Warriors. It's a good one. And 30 years after its release, it's easy to see it as just kind of a fun, pulpy action movie. But Mm -hmm. actually, when it came out, some audiences really freaked out and vandalized theaters and seriously hurt each other. So it's just like in ancient Greece. Really? Yeah, when the Spartans crashed a reading of
2: anabasis and all hell broke loose. Oh my god. It's a legendary battle. It's
1: too much testosterone, those guys. You think? Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, filmmaker Ryan Johnson talks about his new film, Looper, when The Dinner Party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, author Sherman
2: Alexie reads from one of his new short stories. And later, Project Runway's Tim Gunn dresses America down for dressing down.
10: If you want to dress to feel as though you never got out of bed,
2: don't look out but first it's time to meet our guest of honor
1: yes and this week is writer director ryan johnson in 2005 his movie brick won a special jury prize at sundance for originality of vision which could just as easily be awarded to his new film the stunning sci-fi thriller looper it hits theaters this weekend
9: earlier this week i met with him to talk about it and ryan it is an honor thank you so much for having me you are very welcome it sounded very guy smiley when i said that i apologize that sounded very i snapped into radio mode suddenly did you just compare yourself to a muppet uh yes constantly i don't think that's accurate at all you look like a very very real human
1: this film has so many twists and i don't want to give away too many of the spoilers in it so i'm going to let that responsibility fall upon you and you take the hit Tell us the plot as much as you feel responsible telling us so that we can have a conversation.
9: Well, Looper is a time travel movie, and it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's kind of a hitman who works for a mob in the future. The idea is it's really impossible to get rid of bodies in the future, so when when they need someone to disappear, they zap them back in time to Joe, who shoots them and gets rid of the body. And his job is complicated when he shows up to work one morning and the, his victim shows up in front of him and it's his older self who's played by Bruce Willis. And the movie is kind of this cat and mouse game of what happens from there when he lets his older self run. That was great. <laughs> Almost like I've been talking about the movie for a month. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's weird. You're polished. Um, this is It does work beautifully as an action movie. It is a completely thrilling movie, but it has this very unexpectedly intense emotional core to it to me and again this is without giving away too many spoilers it's about the importance of breaking cycles of violence what led you to that theme it feels so emotionally intense that I feel like something huge must have driven you to
9: well yeah I mean those themes were something that that it was really on my mind it's it's I'm hesitant to even like talk about this because the movie is not political at all Mm -hmm. But part of it just stemmed from kind of the feeling I got arguing and discussing with my family back when the Gulf War was going on, actually. And this kind of way that we would talk about this as a goal-oriented thing, using violence in order to find these bad people and kill them and accomplish this thing. It just gave me this topic that to me was really interesting, the idea of violence as a problem-solving tool and maybe some of the problems with that. Besides a moral level, just on a practical level, does that work or does that just create this cycle where someone wrongs you so you kill them but then you've wronged the person they love so they come back to wrong you again and it's almost like a loop almost <laughs> Do you, was there, Were there specific time travel movies that you looked to for inspiration? Yeah, actually, I mean, the, the big one that I looked to, although this is more of a mechanical thing for the storytelling, was uh, The Terminator. Because the Terminator, what The Terminator does is it, it uses time travel to set up the situation, and then time travel gets it out of the way. It's almost easy to forget that the first Terminator is a time travel movie. I wanted time travel to do its job and kind of step back so the movie's less of a puzzle and, and more of kind of this... Moral ride, I guess There's a scene in the movie that I love That's actually about the kind of futility Of wrapping your head around time travel Yeah, there's a scene between the older and younger self Where they sit down and finally talk And young Joe has a bunch of questions He starts asking about time travel And old Joe like shuts him down So do you know what's going to happen? You done all this already? as me? I don't want to talk about time travel. Because if we start talking about it, then we're going to be here all day talking about it, making diagrams with straws. Both both as a writer, but also I I hope it reflects where the audience's head is at at that point. As interesting as all these little questions are about the mechanics of all this stuff, let's just get to what really matters, I guess. Um, I think it was Anthony Lane in,
1: in The New Yorker said that in modern Hollywood, the way it works is a young filmmaker demonstrates that he or she has an amazing vision, And then the prize that Hollywood gives you is the chance to have that vision completely subsumed by making a a faceless action movie. Nobody is going to confuse this for being that way. How did you manage to negotiate that minefield and not have the industry shape you?
9: Well, I mean, this, this movie actually, it's an independent film. You know, we made it, We Sony is releasing it, but they didn't come in until we were finished with the movie or nearly finished with it. So the solution is don't go to Hollywood. Well, no, the thing is though, but you look at Christopher Nolan, for example, who makes movies that give you a lot to chew on and are big personal visions, but that are made within the studio system. And for me, that's the fascinating next step. Why, why do you want to do that? I mean, like this movie seems like it's getting plenty of press. I'm here. Oh, yeah. That's all you need, man. <laughs> no, it's no level of dissatisfaction. It's, it's just that, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it except that you come out of every movie, I think, knowing kind of what you're thirsty for to try with the next one. Coming out of this, I, I feel like, man, it would be really fun to do something that was really fun and just kind of broader to see if we can still hit those same things that we care about. So, But who knows? I say that, and then I'm still figuring out and writing right now. And six months from now, I'll probably be working on a two-person character piece. And off off-Broadway. All right. Let's move on to our standard two questions. We ask these of everybody
1: on the show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what questions should we not ask you? And I hope I haven't asked it. <laughs>
9: uh, what are you working on next? So thanks, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome. I've actually had that answer enough that I don't actually ask that question anymore. Why, people really hate that though. Is it just because you want people to focus on the now? Or? It's just tough to answer because you're, I'm kind of trying, because I don't know the answer, I guess, yes. So. That's a good reason to hate yeah, a question. Yeah. Our second question is, as always,
1: tell us something we don't know. This can be about yourself, something you haven't mentioned in an interview, or something in general about the world that'll blow people's minds at a dinner party.
9: Bizarre trivia. Uh, I know how to play um, The Bones. Now, this is interesting, because we had a musician talk about The Bones on our show a while ago, but where did you learn how to play? You know, I went through a phase. I lived in Santa Monica right out of college, and this is when I learned how to play banjo and accordion and... Uh, I, I lived way too close to McCabe's Guitar, this amazing shop, and they have all this stuff. And I went in there one time, and they had uh, bones, which are their ribs, and they're disgusting. You know, they 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 smell like cow ribs, <laughs> and they're really gross. But if you hold them a certain way between the gaps in your fingers, and get into this weird Zen rhythm of clacking your hand, you can create these really intricate rhythms with them. It's also really impressive because it looks really easy, and then someone says, "Oh, it's cool. Let me try." And they, it's like watching someone do. <laughs> use chopsticks for the first time it just falls all over the place and then you feel really proud of yourself and superior which is the goal of any instrument, really so will we hear some bones on your next soundtrack nope nope although now my cousin nathan is my composer you know and he's we're, we're, we're making movies together since we were 10 so he'll probably hear this now and demand some bones playing on the next one <laughs> thank you dinner party thank you So Brendan, I'm still thinking about
1: Looper days after seeing it. And it is true, time travel is really just a part of it. It's I nothing. want to
2: check it out, but you know, I was thinking if Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis really went back in time, yes, Joe would be the ponytailed teenager he played in Third <laughs> Rock from the Sun, and Willis would be the fast talking detective in Moonlighting.
1: That would be a mind-bending movie. I'd go see that.
4: to eavesdrop.
1: 20 years ago, the story collection The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven marked Sherman Alexie as one of the country's finest and funniest storytellers. Today we overhear him read from his new collection, Blasphemy, a story called Protest.
0: My friend Jimmy was a pale Indian, though all of his brothers and sisters were dark. You might have wondered if Jimmy's real father was a white guy. Some tribal members did wonder, but Jimmy had the same widow's peak cowlick as his browner siblings. When he was little and living on the res, other Indians called him salt or vanilla or snow white. So yeah, he was insecure about his pigment, but Jimmy pretended to embrace it. He insisted on being called White Eagle Feather, or Eagle for short. But you don't get to give yourself an Indian name, so most people ignored his wishes and still called him Jimmy. I was his best friend, so I called him Eagle once in a while. But I usually called him Ego. Jimmy and I were studying auto repair and planned on opening a garage after we graduated. It was a small dream, I guess. But Jimmy acted like it was a super traditional Indian thing. A car won't be a car after we work on it, he said. It won't have horsepower. It will be a powerful horse. It happens all the time in the Indian world. But Jimmy's transformation was sadder than most. He became a community college rebel and started showing up to auto repair class shirtless and barefoot. Shoes were invented by the white man, he said. Come on, ego, I said. I like shoes. Everybody likes shoes. He got all weird and fundamental, challenging any white man in a uniform, security guards, cops, and firemen, He gave crap to postal workers. Damn them, he said, and their damn Nazi shorts. While running along the Spokane River, he spotted a sheriff's cruiser and flipped off the two cops inside. One cop leaned out and shouted, Go, dog, go! Jimmy wanted to be taken seriously. He wanted to be feared. So he ran up to the cop car and kicked the driver's door. Then he kicked it again. The cops scrambled out their seats, chased, and tackled Jimmy. You racist bastards, Jimmy yelled at the confused cops. They thought he was just another white trash hilliard redneck. A few hours later, Jimmy called me from jail. I've started a resistance movement. I am not bailing you out. Don't want bail, he said. I'm a political prisoner. You're a loser is what you are day after that, the television told me that a cop had shot and killed a homeless Indian named Harold in downtown Spokane. He had a knife, the cop said. A carving knife, we learned, about three inches long. The murdered Indian, Harold, trying to reconnect with his culture, had been taking carving lessons at the Indian center. He came from a tribe that made totem poles. They made canoes. Most of the tribe drank. Some drank themselves to death. He had a threatening look on his face, the cop said. I knew Harold a little bit. Every Indian pretty much knows every other Indian. Harold wasn't an angry man. That was his face. I phoned Jimmy to talk about the shooting, but I got his voicemail. Damn it, I said. Indians are still prey animals, it? When are they going to stop shooting at us? I was so mad at the world that I had to make a joke. You see, Ego, I said. Looking as white as you can be is a good thing. Ain't no cop going to shoot you because he thinks you're an angry redskin. Later, I realized it had been a terrible thing to say, so I called him back and apologized to his machine. A few days after that, I called and apologized to his machine again. After a few months of silence, I called him, but his phone was disconnected. I never heard from him or of him again. Jimmy's last act was to disappear. And that was probably the most Indian thing he had ever done.
2: Writer Sherman Alexie reading the story Protest from his anthology Blasphemy. It's out this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media.
1: And now it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party the food. So, Rico, believe it or not,
2: these days people are taking pictures of their food.
1: Isn't that crazy? Really?
2: Yeah, it's That's happening out there.
1: Yeah. At this point, restaurants <laughs> should just set the table with like a smartphone in a butter dish. Exactly.
2: People don't even need anymore. Get it over But, with. you know, some photographers are better than others. And uh, one of the better ones is Todd Selby. He's hmm. the guy behind the blog and book The Selby. Okay. And a few years back, he started taking pictures of chefs where they work for his New York Times blog, Edible Selby. Good gig, right? Well. We don't have it so bad either. That's true. Anyway, this week, a book of his kitchen photos comes out. It's also called Edible Selby. So I met up with Todd at Mass Brothers Chocolate Factory in Brooklyn, one of the places he photographed. And I began by asking him why we get a thrill from seeing where people work.
8: Well, it's this human nature that people are curious. That's the first thing. And then when it comes to food, it's like all about food consciousness you're wondering where does your food come from, where is it grown, how is it grown? The flip side of that is like, how is it being made? And so everyone's really interested from a health thing, but also just, I think people also want to be like supporting good things. So if you feel like you found something that you really, it feels like it has integrity, for instance, what the Mass Brothers are doing with bringing in the, the beans, the whole process of roasting it and grinding it and doing everything here where you can see everything, it's really appealing to people.
2: So this book features a lot of, they're not all rustic spaces, but they look like art spaces. They look like, uh, they're not the stainless steel kitchens that you off, that people sometimes think of. How did you select these people and how could you know their spaces were going to kind of go with, along with your aesthetic before you visited them?
8: Well, yeah, I mean, that was my fear when I started the food book, is like, oh God, I don't want just like chefs cutting vegetables in stainless steel kitchens under fluorescent lights. I was like having panic attacks about that at night until I really started getting into it. And, I mean, I'm much more interested in things that are kind of handcrafted and the human touch. And, you know, a lot of it was about research, so kind of trying to find out what different people were doing. And, like, for instance, Angelo Garros, that's actually his home kitchen. That's not a restaurant. That's just his own vibe. It's just this kind of world that he makes. You know, it's, he works there with his forge, but then also that's where he cooks, and he has, you know, an outdoor fire pit and a fig tree growing up through an opening in the like a little atrium within his kitchen and a chandelier from venice all white glass and it's really like over the top it's a a real authentic authenticity i think is really interesting to me and
2: you mentioned how this is a lot about as much about the characters as it is about the the spaces in which they're cooking the food did you any see any like personality traits that were kind of consistent throughout a lot of these folks
8: I think the one thing that holds true for all the people in the book is that they're incredibly passionate. The food world and food industry is incredibly challenging and difficult and not rewarding financially. That people who get into it and stay with it are so driven and passionate about what they do. Beyond that, like, I, I think that there is quite a bit of diversity in terms of... Like from Rasmus Kofed, who won the Bakuzda or bronze, silver, gold... Like world champion the
2: Phelps of uh, of cooking
8: yes, and he's so his place almost looks like a UFO and it's so kind of futuristic and sleek and sharp and his food is incredibly refined and I think the thing that connects him to like Eric Werner, who's on the the cover of the book the, in Heartwood, and he's got this like big roaring fire behind him, and you see palm trees coming through the top and his chef's table is that passion that you know, drive you know, Eric to go out and build this place in the jungle, his dream restaurant and dream kitchen.
2: I've interviewed a bunch of chefs on this show and you mentioned the word passion. You're stepping into their kitchen with a camera. Were there ever any moments where there was some tension or um, where you just felt like, you know, I'm going to have to come back a different day?
8: Well, you're definitely in their territory, and it's much different. My, my first book is about homes, and it's a much different vibe. It's more casual. You're in someone's house. You're their guest. You're having tea. You're hanging out. It's much more chill. This is like a place of work. It's, it's really much more serious, so it's much more intense. Rasmus was probably the funniest one of all that's in the book. I show up. We start talking, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm the photographer guy who's been bugging you to come in here. Great. Okay. Okay. And and I'm like, well, here's how it normally works. You know, maybe you make a few dishes and I kind of see your process and I take pictures of the thing. And he kind of listens to me. And then he looks at me and he goes, you're a fly on the wall. <laughs> I go, all right, man, I'm flying on the wall. I get it. Okay, let's go.
2: Well, that, that make, brings up a question about the mechanics of how you work. From reading about you, uh, it seems like you work pretty leanly. It's like you with the camera, not a lot of lights. Was most of this kind of you and a photo assistant? No,
8: I'd say like, 80% of the shoots in the book I did by myself. That's definitely my preferred way to work, especially in the food world. Already it's bad enough that I'm in their way, but then I bring someone else, and then you bring lights, you bring this, it's like you're just, they just hate you. Everyone hates you. You know, maybe the chef is fine with it, but the other 15 people in the kitchen are just hating you. And they have knives. Yeah, and they have knives. I f- and maybe
2: I'm wrong, but I feel like you probably get asked a lot, or people when they meet you think, You are the luckiest guy in the world, that you get to just, you know, people invite you into their homes, you get to take pictures, it's such a wonderful thing. Can you maybe, do you want to respond to how, the difficulty of putting together a book like this?
8: I feel like I'm incredibly lucky that I, I started the Selby and Edible Selby as a passion project just because I love people, I'm really curious. The fact that it totally has become my career and my passion project, I'm so lucky.
2: So we can all just remain jealous of you. Yes. So, Rico, along with the pictures, Todd's book includes recipes and magnets, including what what I'm pretty sure is the first bone marrow magnet ever.
1: It's made of bone marrow? Well, no, it's an illustration, but still, it's pretty. (laughs) I was going to say that that cow had an iron-rich diet. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, coming up, two
2: guests who know know a thing or two about attractive TV hosts, Mm. Tim Gunn and Salman Rushdie, join us when The Dinner Party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show
1: that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, none other than author Salman Rushdie is here to talk about the day his life turned stranger than fiction, and you'll hear a new tune from dance diva Sky Ferreira. But first... It's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
2: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Tim Gunn. For now 10 seasons, he's served as mentor on the fashion competition show Project Runway, offering contestants sharp advice and a shoulder to lean on. He was a longtime faculty member and later design chair at Parsons, the new school for design in New York. His latest style guide out this month is Tim Gunn's Fashion Bible the fascinating history of everything in your closet. Tim, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Brendan and Rico. I'm thrilled to be with you. Likewise. I apologize that i you catch me. I'm growing a beard now because we're going into autumn. I I'm really it. unkempt this week. No, <laughs> you're not. I <laughs> you, feel a little you bad. Look, you look
1: man chic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brian right. is diverting your attention to his beard so you don't notice the burlap sacks that he normally wears. That's right. He looks know. He looks very sharp I today. am wearing
2: my, my standard blazer. But this book, what is fun about it, it's not just a fashion Bible. It also talks about the history of fashion. Well,
10: and that was my intention. Actually, when I was appointed chair of the Department of Fashion Design at Parsons, it was at that moment that I really wanted to write a fashion history book. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because there was no fashion history in the curriculum which shocked me. Yeah. So, I assembled a group of academics. And when I saw the texts, I thought, talk about a snooze fest. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I find it fascinating, but yeah. how many chapters can you read on an Elizabethan collar? I mean, it just goes on and on yeah. and
2: on. Isn't that what Shades of Grey about? about <laughs> like an Elizabethan collar, matter of speaking.
1: No, no one is gonna confuse your chapters with being boring. You have one actually called Capri Pants and Shorts, The Plague of Our Nation. We wanted to ask you about this. Where did this plague come from? Why do we have these pants in the first place if they're so awful?
10: Of course, a Capri pant was named for the Isle of Capri. It was meant to be a resort wear. Hmm. And and talking to real women, the appeal of the Capri pant is twofold. One is comfort, Hmm. and the other is fit. You only have to fit one size, the waist. You don't have to worry about where the length of it falls, so it's easy for people, but visually, Every woman I know wants to look as long and lean as possible, and our clothes provide a kind of optical illusion to do that. They can also provide an optical illusion to make us look shorter and squatter. (laughs) And that's what the capri pad does for most women. So I don't understand it. I say, banish it. And on the topic of comfort, my refrain is, if you want to dress to feel as though you never got out of bed, don't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Amen. You, actually, what you say is the baggy cargo capri is the single worst item of clothing in America Well, it's today. the
10: combination of capri and cargo. All so right, you look I not see.
1: only shorter, but wider. <laughs> wider. All right. Well, you have a way, as we can see, of delivering sometimes stern advice. However, on the on the show, you do it in somehow a, a way that makes people
10: love you. It comes from 29 years of teaching. It gives you a lot of resources to draw upon. Yeah.
1: Well, we are hoping that you can uh, teach our listeners about some proper ways to behave based on their questions. Are you ready to hear these? I'm all set. All right. Here's one from Joe. In Dallas, Texas. I'm an academic and I'm super into fashion. Recently, I've been matching my PowerPoint slide color palette to my outfits. Is that too far? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate
10: Joe. I have met very few people in the academic arena who would even admit <laughs> to being a fashion person. That's interesting. I think they, they believe in the distributive property of brain cells, and if they're using any of them to think about their wardrobe, mm. then somehow they're diminishing <laughs> yeah. um, their academic career. They're going to yeah. be
1: short a theory or two if they think about their clothes.
10: Absolutely. And I've been in more academic meetings where people, I, honestly, people wearing pajama bottoms. <laughs> And no one looks askance except me. I'm horrified. So, Joe, first of all, thank you for that. As long as you're not a rainbow reflection of that PowerPoint presentation, Mm -hmm. if you're pulling out one item color-wise, I think there's a subliminal message there that's actually quite powerful and potent, and I like it. Mm -hmm. But I would not take it too far. I wouldn't use more than one color or start looking at patterns.
1: Suddenly he's wearing a clown suit to match every color
10: slide in his presentation. Exactly, or making a quick change during an intermission. Yeah,
1: or
2: what if he's wearing a bullet point T-shirt? Yeah, (laughs) that's not cool.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go, Joe. All right, here's a question from John in Pasadena, California. He says, if I show up at a party in flip-flops and shorts only to discover that the other guests are in sport coats and ties, what should I do? And he has a... (laughs) He actually gives you some choices here. A carry on as though nothing is wrong. B run home and change. Or C apologize for being raised in California. (laughs) Well, my question for John is, how could you possibly get it so
10: wrong? What happened that that allowed that to happen? Yeah, Yeah, did did you forget how to read the invitation? On the topic of run home and change, I mean if you're in a position where in fact only you know that this has happened, you have yet to walk up to the door. Yeah, I definitely would do that. If you've already crossed the threshold, own it. Mm. I'm reminded of one of only two trips to Fire Island for a reason where I was asked (laughs) to uh, be crew on a sailboat. And I was the first one on the boat and I lost complete control of it. It's drifting out into the Great (laughs) South Bay. I finally am able to get it back to the pier a whole crowd is assembled watching this thing. And I simply said, well, when John asked me to crew for him, I thought he meant mix the cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're there in flip-flops and shorts, make a
1: joke out of it. Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm here to bartend.
2: Yeah. All right. We have have another question. This is a non-fashion question. It comes from Nick in Madison, Wisconsin. How does one eat olives with pits in polite company? Is it appropriate to spit out the pits? Do you spit them into your hand and leave them on your plate? Or are you supposed to use a fork or napkin or something?
10: Well... This is what I do. Okay. Pick the olive up with your fingers, and you place it into your mouth.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we're going to get it step by step.
10: A, a pit will be Pres- the outcome itself. once the <laughs> <Yeah>. fleshier <laughs> Mastication. part of the, yes, of uh, the olive is consumed. It's inevitable. And a pit remains in your mouth. I mean, you don't want to swallow it. It's not a good thing. No. no. So you your have fang- an olive tree in your stomach. Mm-hmm. Get the pit near the tip of your tongue. Grab it and put it on the butter plate or somewhere. Don't try to hide it. I mean, this is another case. I believe in owning everything we do. Own it. But you certainly don't want to... Spit it. You don't <laughs> sure. want to reject it as though it's a cannon being fired. <laughs> um, though that's fun. Yeah.
1: So I do think that there's a little bit of a host etiquette issue here too, because you should, as a host, I think, provide somewhere to put that pit. Definitely. Well,
2: because I have to admit, sometimes I'll put on a jacket that I haven't worn in a while, and I'll go into the breast pocket, <laughs> oh, and there'll no. be pits in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brendan, you
10: opt for the breast pocket.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's
2: where I go. But then I, three months later, I'm like, oh my goodness, the ants
1: love your closet. <laughs>
10: I have put them into a napkin, but mm. then the. Trouble is, you need to use the napkin, yeah. and then the you can't because the napkin is now yeah. the pit dispensary. Sure. It will hurt you. Yeah. Sure.
2: So yeah. I guess the, being the first olive eater, you should say, hey, is there a place to put yeah. the pits? Yeah, exactly. deal with it. All right. So, Nick, we've answered your question.
1: We hope. <laughs> there you go. Jesse in Los Angeles has our next question. She writes, I'm always getting cold. By the way, she's in L.A. and always getting cold, so that's a problem. Yeah, maybe you should move. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, don't move. Don't move, because it's only gonna get worse. (laughs) That's right. Jesse says, I'm always getting cold, so I bring layers with me wherever I go. I used to think it was okay to tie these items around my waist. It's so practical. But that seems to be totally out of fashion any creative and fashionable alternatives?
10: Well, I'm assuming it's a cardigan or a a shawl or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I would work my inner Grace Kelly and (laughs) drape it over my shoulders, because when it's around the waist, it looks entirely too athletic. Um, It's not good luck for going out at night.
1: But around the shoulders, that feels like sort of an old 80s thing, like the sort of preppy look.
10: Well, it is, in a manner of speaking, but there are not a lot of options one has. I mean, if you have a large handbag, you can certainly... Roll it up and put it it in the handbag. You certainly aren't going to place
2: it any further below your waistline. There may be another question here. Shouldn't she just suffer a little bit? I mean, isn't it better (laughs) to look good than to feel good? Isn't that a basic tenet of fashion? Well—
10: it depends upon the duration of the suffering. Mm. I'm always saying about the red carpet, whenever yeah. celebrities are on it and they're saying, oh, I'm so cold, listen, suffer. How long <laughs> yeah, can you be right. on this red carpet? Exactly. 20 minutes maybe?
1: <laughs> suffer. One other thing, Jesse, in Los Angeles, you're in Los Angeles, so you can just put it in the trunk of your car. Oh, that's right. That's true. You know, as a New
10: Yorker, yes. I haven't owned a car for 29 years. Yeah, didn't yeah. So if it's you. not with me in some
2: capacity, it well, doesn't exist. Don't you have a fashion Sherpa? You should get one I bet you there'll be volunteers Oh, I'm inspired, Brendan
1: (laughs) Thank you Oh man, we're going to see this classified ad tomorrow in Vogue Rico, look for it Tim Gunn, who Rico, I have to
2: say, is one of the nicest people who has ever walked through our studio door. Agreed. Yeah, he has a new book out called Tim Gunn's Fashion Bible, The Fascinating History of Everything in Your Closet. Check it out. And
1: folks, we don't care what you're wearing when you send us your etiquette questions. As long
2: as you're at home and we can't see you.
1: Of course, stay in bed if you're wearing pajamas. But from there, email your queries via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: Just last week, award-winning author Salman Rushdie released Joseph Anton, a memoir that focuses on the nine years he spent living in hiding under the constant threat of death after the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa sentencing him to death for his novel The Satanic Verses. Today, he's here to discuss his new book. And Salman, tell me, if this interview had taken place while the fatwa was still in place, what, if anything, would be different about how you arrived in the studio today, and how we would have arranged this chat.
3: Oh, well, there would have been a lot more intermediaries, a lot more cloak and dagger, and there would have been a very limited number of people that you could have told that I was coming in, and uh, there would have been a lot of policemen. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I got pushed into this strange kind of John le Carré novel, you know. Can
2: you tell us about the moment you found out you were the subject of the Fatwa?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the book had come out in England in September 88, which was six months before Khomeini intervened, and... And during that time, there had been a kind of mounting argument about it, but nobody really thought that anyone was in in physical danger. And then that morning, I was at home working at my desk, and I was called by a journalist from the BBC who said, how does it feel to know that you've been condemned to death by the Ayatollah Khomeini? I thought, that's one hell of a question. (laughs) (laughs) And I said something stumbling like it doesn't feel that great. And then ran downstairs and started locking doors and barring windows as if as if that was going to fix anything.
2: You were set to attend the funeral of a friend of yours that day, Bruce Chatwin, yeah. uh, the writer And you did, but then after that funeral, you were kind of sucked up into this kind of security world. So um, it's kind of on. The police come to you and they tell you that until there's, quote, major political shift, this will be the -hmm. life you lead. Were you surprised, or I was surprised as the reader, that there wasn't a system in place for handling a situation like yours?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. And and I think in the public mind, everybody assumed that there would be such a system. And so this phrase, the government safe house, got into everybody's heads because everybody's read spy novels. But the reality is that if there are such places, um, none of them were ever offered to me. So I was put into the very difficult situation of being told that on the one hand, I couldn't go home because they thought it would be difficult to protect me there. And on the other hand, it was up to me to find places to go, uh, while at the same time having to be invisible, which made it very difficult to find places to go. You know, in, Invisible Man rents house. It's difficult.
2: You're constantly moving and you're surrounded by people. There, there's a, a, you know, a lot of discussion of the security officers who protected you in this book. Yeah. A side question here. What is romance like when you're surrounded by police officers all day?
3: <laughs> you know something? One of the first interviews I was able to do during this was with Mike Wallace for 60 Minutes. Hmm. And just about the second question he asked me was, was you know, your marriage broke up. What do you, what do, you do about sex? And I thought, really, this is 60 minutes? Um, <laughs> it was just one of those moments when the right answer plopped into my head. And I was able to say, Mike, you know, the truth is I'm quite grateful for the rest. <laughs> yeah. And he was deeply shocked. He was really, that the answer was very shocking to him. So I had to say something like, just kidding, Mike.
2: When you were writing this memoir, what surprised you most about looking back on, on those years?
3: Well, there was a thing that I used to say to friends of mine. If this thing wasn't not funny at all, it would be quite funny. And there was this moment which I'd completely forgotten until I reread the memoir when the police persuaded me that what I needed to do was wear a wig. <laughs> all you have to do is change your appearance slightly, and then nobody recognizes you. You'll be able to walk down the high street, and nobody will, nobody will look in your direction. And I thought, really, is that right? And they said, yes, and you believe me, believe me, we've done this for lots of people and, and it's, it's going to work. So this wig was made, this ridiculous object. So, so, so I put this thing on and we went to you know, central London just near Harrods department store and I got out of the car with this thing on my head and people actually started laughing in the street. <laughs> people on the sidewalk were pointing and laughing. I heard somebody say, look, there's that <laughs> Roshni wearing a wig. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. It, just, it was just appalling. And I, so I just dived back into the police car, ripped this thing off my head, and said, I'm never putting that on again. So at
2: the heart of this book is your belief in the freedom of speech. Yes. And you cite several examples of other writers throughout history who have been persecuted uh, for something they've written. For example, the Roman poet Ovid. Can you explain what happened to him and tell us what his story meant to you?
3: Well I mean I, I felt in a way I took great strength from so to speak, the history of literature and the way the way in which writers have often stood up against tyrants and in many ways their work has outlasted uh, the tyrants concerns. So you know Ovid was exiled by the by Caesar Augustus and spent the rest of his life on the shore of the Black Sea begging to be allowed to come back to Rome and it never was. And yet you know the poetry of Ovid has outlasted the Roman Empire. So what we see is is, you could argue that art itself has an ability to endure even the most appalling attack. But artists themselves are vulnerable. You know, art is maybe less vulnerable than artists. And, and, and one of the things that I've tried to do in the years since the trouble ended for me is to become involved with groups like the Pan American Center, which, which, spend a lot of its, which spends a lot of its time defending writers in trouble around the world.
2: When did you know it was over for you? When did the fever break?
3: There were two stages, really. One was there was a political decision at the United Nations, rather like now, at the General Assembly in 1998, uh, when the Iranians basically agreed to call the dogs off. Mm. Uh, And it was about, I think, March 2002, when the British finally decided that the threat level had dropped so far that they didn't need to be involved in a protection operation anymore.
2: And it's an almost touching scene in the book when they tell you that they're no longer going to be protecting you.
3: Yeah. what was I mean, what was, again, almost funny about it, given that they'd been there for so long, you know, from 1989 to 2002, that that when they showed up for this meeting and said, you know, it's better and we're going to bring it to an end, I said, well, okay, well, how do we do that? What happens now? And they said, they stood up and they said, well, nice to know you. Shook hands, walked (laughs) out of the room. Bam, gone. Wow. Just like that. (laughs) And I thought, really? You know, after 13 years, you just walk out the room? (laughs) It was was extraordinary. Just like that, the end.
1: And friends, that's the dinner party for this week. But uh, don't worry, we're not walking out of your lives forever. Till next time, you can catch us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Thanks to Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Our
2: interns are Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Chris Clark, Chris Peters, Peter Clowney, Jess Harwitz, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace.
1: That almost sounds like a palindrome, that thank you list. I know. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Singer, model, and actress Sky
2: Ferreira has a new EP coming out this week. It's called Ghost, and this first single from it has already been setting the internet ablaze. It's called Everything is Embarrassing. Bon appétit. attending the dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Hi,
1: everyone. Uh, Who are you? Why, I'm Brendan's fashion sherpa. Jack, can you hand me my argyle spats? Yep. Rico, need anything? Uh, no, I'm good with my slanket.